TVP's announcements. This is a series that we have on our network where we give you announcements about upcoming projects and platforms that are entering the crypto ecosystem. Now, this is a disclaimer because we do that now. So, here's the thing this is the presentation of a platform, and that's it. This is an investment advice. Don't take it as investment advice. If you like the platform, seek it out in the show notes. Go there, buy the things, invest in the platform. Help them out with your skill sets. But we're not giving you any recommendations or advice. This is just for you to listen to and soak up some new information about a new platform in this ecosystem. So, please enjoy. And hey everybody, it's D. If you heard that music... From the absurdist, you know it's time for an announcement. And today's announcement is a little different. We're not going to just present a project in this space for you. We also are helping to raise awareness for the Startup Society Summit. You will hear all sorts of neat details about that summit at the tail end of the show. But we're going to dive in. And today we are joined with the CEO of the Startup Societies, John Wise, the CEO of Loki, and John Cronin, the president of BuildCoin. So, we like to kind of start every show with everyone's like genesis or origin story and, and how they um, intersected with blockchain or Bitcoin. Um, so, whoever wants to go first, I guess you can just claim the first to give a shot at it, but you know, between your professional and, and personal lives, like how did it, how did it meet with blockchain technology? Yeah, for for me, uh, this, this John Wise, the CEO of Loki. Um, for me, it kind of was just interesting. Um, that was that was a long time ago, though. That was in 2010. Um, it was kind of interesting, and and uh, uh, actually a. a a buddy owed me some money and said, Hey, I don't have any cash, but I have, I have Bitcoin. Would you be up for taking that? Yeah, (laughs) sure. Why not? I don't know what the hell it is, but might as well. Um, and then I kind of forgot about it until, uh, until 2017. Um, when we just realized that the, the application of intellectual property on, on the blockchain was just the perfect, perfect pairing. It just made a lot of sense. Um, I, I think for me personally, it was kind of the, the difference between cryptocurrency and blockchain, you know, cryptocurrency and really knew nothing about the underlying technology. Uh, and then 2017, it really made a big difference and, and switched over. I do. 
wants so, to go um, next? Yeah, so, so in 1995, I, I started a company because I got excited about the internet and the transformation that the internet could bring about. I created a company called Digital Paper, and we were able to transform the way Fortune 500 manufacturing companies like General Electric, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, uh, distributed information around their supply chain with internet technology. And, um, you know, really get excited about transformational effects on businesses, on the world. And to be honest with you, over you know, since then, the, the market's kind of matured. It's kind of getting bored with uh, what we were doing. We weren't seeing enough transformational opportunities. I started looking around and I came across Bitcoin. And first I kind of discounted it as nerd money. But as I started looking more into that technology, I, I kind of had that same aha moment that we did in, in 1995 with the internet. And I said, this is going to be the next big paradigm shift. And I, in my presentations, I use that word paradigm shift. And we don't really use that. But the last time we heard that was around the internet. So this really, I really do believe that this blockchain technology and cryptocurrency is the next big paradigm shift for technology. And what, what, what excited us about Billcoin we kind of, you know, initially went after it from a technology perspective, but this technology is, you know, this opportunity is more than just technology. It really brings about a, you know, this decentralization brings brings about a way to not only transform businesses, but governments and the way citizens interact with their uh, their governments. So that's that's what got us here, what got me here. Nice. The paradigm shift. Paradigm. It's a, hopefully it happens. I don't know. I, I always think it's kind of, you usually don't notice a paradigm shift until after it's happened. So claiming there's going to be one and then living through it, which is seeming to be what's happening, um, is kind of unique. And uh, what about you, Joe? Let's let's kind of outline what Startup Societies is and um, what the summit's about. So I got started in the crypto space and with Startup Societies from a political angle. I was very involved in the economics and theory of uh, political theory, largely from a libertarian lens. Uh, but when I started getting involved in elections and uh, activism, I realized it was incredibly ineffectual and that the most impactful, most ethical means of social change is actually through entrepreneurship and things like cryptocurrencies, rather than simply arguing about an idea they demonstrated on a large scale. And while I'm no longer a libertarian, I, I sort of subscribe to an exitarian model where people create their own systems and demonstrate their idea. And startup societies is the logical extension of that. Rather than simply trying to change a whole country, they take small pockets of it and demonstrate policies on a small scale. And cryptocurrencies obviously are in the same vein. They have people that voluntarily opt in and use the system rather than involuntarily have to accept them from the top down. Mm. I've never heard exotarianism before. Well, we made up the word, so that makes sense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was looking around. In my room here, I was like, what? Exo, exotarianism. Okay. Well, how could someone consider themselves an exotarian? An exotarian. Uh, basically, there is three main modes of political participation. There's loyalty, which is acceptance of the regime. There is voice, which is uh, trying to change the system through speaking or through voting. And exit is by leaving the system and trying to make it change or compete or create an entirely different system altogether. So someone who is an exitarian is someone who focuses on that form of political change rather than voice and loyalty. Okay. Interesting. That's very interesting. Um, so I guess we can kind of change subjects a little bit and let's, let's talk about the projects that 
that you guys uh, each are associated with, and that's um, Loki and and Buildcoin specifically. So, John Wise, I, you can go first. Um, what what is Loki Coin for everyone that doesn't know, and and what problem is it looking to solve? Yeah. So so there's right. Uh, there's there's Loki, which is a a for profit entity that is all around um, having an easier and more efficient intellectual property discovery platform. Right? It's all about searching for IP easier, uh, making it cheaper, trying to to help uh, help people all over the world get a get a global patent system or invention system invention registry, uh, and and protecting the anonymity. Um, while also getting to to some ROI much faster for for inventors, um, one of the first problems that that we faced when when filing my own patent <clears throat> um, was that we realized there there, were, there was kind of a systemic flaw. Right, um, the flaw was that as every inventor comes up with a new technology, he or she also names that technology. Not really that big of an issue, except when you realize the fact that every search engine in the world was using a keyword search. Mm. If you're the only one in the world that has the keyword, how do you find anything similar? You just simply don't, right? Uh, and then on top of that, the average cost for filing a patent in the U.S. is $130,000. And the average rate of return is about 3% um, with a, a, about a six-and-a-half-year turnaround. Um, it ended up being really prohibitive uh, and really stifling. So, so we, we set out to make the search engine process a lot faster. Uh, and then from there, we also realized that, that there was an issue with global economics around, around exactly this. There was a huge value in, in IP and inventions and ideas. There were companies that wanted them. There were um, uh, governments that, that needed it as well. There was education reform that needed to happen. There was economic reform that needed to happen. And, and so we took an asset class that was extremely slow moving, like intellectual property, and, uh, and shifted it into, into this relative coin, a, a sort of resource-based economy, where we could truly um, create a global valuation metric objectively that everybody agreed upon um, while using the blockchain to protect anonymity. Um, what, what we do with the combination of Loki Coin, which is a nonprofit foundation, and then the, the Loki Inc., which is uh, the for-profit tool and everything there, what we effectively end up doing is, is we created a, a, a global system for buying and selling literally the right to file a patent, um, not patents themselves. We actually don't need to deal with examiners. We don't need to deal with the patent system. Um, so anybody anywhere in the world can come up with a new technology and they can uh, sell or license the right to that technology anywhere else in the world. Uh, this effectively ends up creating a crowdsourcing of research and development globally. Mm, that's very interesting. So you are basically, you're trying to, to, to lessen the cost for people to invent new things and, and um, the, you said it costs $130,000 to file a new patent. On average, I mean, that's a lot of money I don't have. Yep, so. <laughs> ours costs two hundred and fifty dollars. Oh, okay. So that's a huge. That's good. Huge difference. And, and and it goes and and that's not even to file. That's just to do the research, right? And 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 then filing is is effectively one coin. Um, you can stake an invention on the blockchain. Now it's not the same as filing a patent, 
Um, but what it does do is give you a one-year um, court admissible right to, uh, to being able to file a patent. So again, um, it's not quite the same as filing a patent because we don't want to have to deal with the examiners. We don't want you to have to deal with the examiners. Um, it does not give you a 20-year right or anything like that. It gives you a one-year court admissible right to file a non-provisional patent. So um, putting, your, putting your, your name in the hat or essentially uh, putting your name in queue uh, before anybody else. And in, in the patent system, that's what you really want. Um, we went from $130,000 to $250, and we went from six and a half to eight years um, down to about uh, eight minutes. Mm. Wow, that, those are huge changes. So, I mean, that's going to affect so many businesses if, if it takes off, because if a business is, is operating under the precedent that it's going to take six years before they start to get any return, um, wow, that's amazing. Um, yeah. What, what do you think the patent system or, or the intellectual property system is worth around the world right now? Oh, man. You put me on the spot of not having done that research before the show started. <laughs> Let me guess. Okay, I guess I'm going to say it's in the tens of billions. Yeah, try hundreds of trillions. Okay, so I was just a little bit off. I was a, I was a little bit off. Yeah, um, so, so think, think of it this way, right? Hold on one second. Um. So if you think of it this way, right, global domestic product, GDP, mm -hmm. um, when looked at it in a purchasing power amount, right, last year we had about $144 trillion, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, of that GDP, it's broken down into products, goods, and services. That's, the, that's what all GDP is made up of. Now, okay. the services are about 15%, okay? And those are largely legal, banking, and finance, Right. And then you've got uh, uh, goods, which are uh, also between 12 and 15%, right? All these numbers vary depending on who's done the audits, that sort of thing. Um, and those, those goods are made up of textiles, agriculture, and livestock. Mm -hmm. right? But what you end up with is, is about 70% that goes toward product, okay? Mm -hmm. Products, we can break down into three things as well. That comes down to the materials used to build a product, the efforts or energy exerted by a business, uh, an individual, a machine, a plant, animal, whatever, and the idea of what the product is in the first place. Okay. Now, the materials, for the materials, we have a commodities market. We can buy and sell futures. We can buy and sell the materials themselves. Okay. For the efforts and energy exerted, we have an equities market. Where are the ideas traded? Mm. I do not know. This is one third of a hundred trillion dollars a year. Now, furthermore, there's a three percent yield on patents and inventions. Right? Those figures are all considering only patents and products, not the rest of the ideas that people couldn't go to market with. Right? Which is the other ninety something percent of all of this. Um, oh, wow. It's. It's, it's a huge, huge, huge number. And then when you start considering the unbanked as well and those that don't have internet access and all sorts of other things, you, you end up getting hundreds of billions of inventions uh, a year, right? And, and, and it gets a massive scale. Um, again, it's all very subjective and I'm sure people would love to 
argue the, the semantics of the stuff. Um, but that's exactly what we're trying to fix, right? Right. We're trying to fix the subjective analysis of what an invention is, the difference between one one patent and another patent or invention and another invention. And we're trying to to, to remove the speculative valuation for things as well, make it a crowd-derived objective value. That is it's very ambitious and also there's a lot of opportunity, obviously. Yep. Um, it, it is ambitious, um, but we've we've been doing this since 2008, as when I filed my first patent on this. Um, I've been around the invention community for a long time now. Um, I've had many, many, many inventions. Is it? This is not. Does that commercial with um, what's the box of George Foreman? Does that commercial bother you? Do you know what commercial I'm talking about? No. Call my friends at Invent Help, and we will. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, Invent Help. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, look, they're 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 genuinely trying to streamline the process, but you know, they're making a a, a lot of money in the meantime. Um, you know, they they're sort of captivating and and capitalizing on the fact that a lot of inventions don't go anywhere, mm-hmm. um, and that when they don't, they'll get the rights to that IP. Um, which they then license out and, and go further and further and further, right? So they don't actually need to charge very much. Um, but ultimately, the whole system is just broken the way that it is. Um, and, and that's just in the U.S., right? When, when you start getting internationally, it gets way worse. So every country has their own patent system, and every patent system has a different categorization or classification system. Uh, on top of that, over half of them are in different languages as well. So there's almost no communication from one to another. Um, and then on top of that all, there's nothing that classifies or, or databases products, research papers, uh, and articles. Mm. So to switch gears here a little bit, and audience, if you're listening, we're going to bounce back and forth between these projects. But now I want to take it over to you, John, John Cronin, and, um, and let's discuss what BuildCoin is. And the problem that Bitcoin's trying to solve, and maybe go into a little bit about infrastructure going on the blockchain. Okay, thank you. So at the Bitcoin Foundation, we're we're building a, a blockchain um, ecosystem, or even we're we're calling it a, a new operating system for uh, bringing to market infrastructure, public infrastructure projects, and also executing them transparently. So. Uh, the world underinvests by about a trillion dollars a year in infrastructure. More people in the world have access to cell phones than they do toilets. Um, in the United States, uh, we have 130,000 bridges that are rated D or, or below, and many of those are just are, are failing, where they're they're dangerous. They're they're going to collapse at any time. So when you look at the infrastructure in the United States compared to um, Europe and um, Asia, I mean, it's, it's horrible. Um, and so there's a lot of problems I mean, when it comes to the, the infrastructure I mean, there's, there, there's a couple problems that we're solving. One is transparency. If you're in a country that's in the bottom quartile transparency international, you're just not going to get any projects originated because nobody's going to finance those projects because of the corruption and the fraud. Um, the other, the other issue is when it comes to financing those projects, there's only a, you know, since they're long projects, billion-dollar projects take a long time to execute. Um, you know, there's very few organizations that actually do invest in those projects, so it's a limited sources of financing. Um, and then, 
the other issue is just, you know, you can, you can talk about the financing and the fraud, but the biggest problem, as I said, we're under-investing in infrastructure. It's just in, in developing countries, it's, there, you know, there's just a lack of infrastructure. You know, I think in Africa, 640 million people have never had electricity. Um, so in developing countries, we're fa they're falling behind with infrastructure development. In the U.S., you know, we're, we're not reinvesting. We're spending more time maintaining our failing infrastructure than we are new infrastructure. So the biggest problem is not even the corruption and the fraud. We're just not starting enough projects. We're not getting them going. And when you talk to people who are financing these projects, they say there's not enough projects. And when you're talking to people that have projects, they say there's not enough money. And what it comes down to, the disconnect, is there's not enough bankable projects. And the best way to explain this is there's a lot of ideas, but for these projects to be originated, all of the details, the plans, the financing, the environmental studies, all of that has to be worked out. And that's something that takes a lot of time and a lot of money. And it's in, it's a high, it's a high risk investment. If I invest that money and it doesn't become a project, I lose that money. So the problem is, is, is there's not enough budget. There's not enough resources behind taking projects from ideas to being a bankable project ready to go. So we're actually solving that problem. We're actually creating an ecosystem that's, that, that selects projects that are strategic, strategic public infrastructure projects that are going to improve the lives of the citizens in a region. And we're actually funding the pre-development for that. And the other thing that we're doing is we're actually bringing in experts in a crowdsourcing mechanism. So typically when this pre-development activity is done, it's, it's, low, it's sent out to a low bidder. So you have average companies doing average work. To basically, they, they call them feasibility studies, but the more I get into it, they're really business plans. You're actually building a business plan for infrastructure. And you, you know, if, if this is the most strategic prod project for citizens in a, in, a, in, a, in a region, you want to put your best resources behind it. So what we're doing in this crowdsourcing platform is bringing in experts to actually crowdsource ideas and tweak the business plans to get the best possible uh, plan for that public infrastructure. Hmm. So why did you feel you needed a blockchain to solve this specific problem? Um, well, I mean, the big, I mean, so when you look at the corruption and the fraud, mm -hmm. I mean, it's all, all has to do with the payments and there's a, there, it's a very opaque system for a, you know, uh, infrastructure is, is about a $5 trillion a year industry. And when you talk to people in the, in the industry, there's a, there's a lack of data, lack of information. Um, most of the, so we were working in Brazil and the last three presidents have been indicted for stealing money from construction projects, infrastructure projects. Um, you know, Transparency International has shown that, that you know, most of the corruption uh, comes from public infrastructure projects, public works projects. So tracking that payments, you know, facilitating the payments, making sure people get paid on time is a big deal, but also creating that audit trail where you can actually see where the money goes is a very important component of that. The other thing is when it comes to a decentralized system, and the, the current centralized system is failing our citizens. It just doesn't work. So setting up a, a, a decentralized system that hacks the current system is important, and that's where blockchain decentralized systems come into play. And the other thing that, that I, I talk about a lot is, is with when you create a, an ecosystem with blockchain and cryptocurrency, you know, I, I describe it not as um, a replacement for money. I, I like to think of it as frequent flyer miles, a loyalty system. 
So you have the ability, just like United Airlines does, to reward people for good behavior, for incentivizing um, incentivizing the system and keeping people within the system and, 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 and changing it. Mm-hmm. So we're actually, you know, we're, we're, we're creating a private economy that allows us to take some money from a small transaction fee from the payments and apply that to funding of these pre-development activities. So we're actually creating a circular economy that, that, that basically fix, fixes the current broken system. And, and oh, what, go ahead. what allows that to happen? I always thought infrastructure would be a great place for blockchain to settle into, um, especially because if you can get people, enough people involved into raising money for these infrastructure projects, then if you consider proof of stake and staking and airdrops, there's all sorts of ways to uniquely incentivize the public to continue to finance these projects. Yeah. You know, and that's, yeah, that's a good point. I didn't mention that the other component of our system is the, is the financing. So we can actually do, uh, you know, you, you could, you could call it crowdfunding. You could call it an ICO for a project and, you know, that allows you to, and you don't have to do the whole project because some of these projects are billion dollar projects, but even if you can take a fraction of that project and get the citizens to participate, that's like, that's a vote. That's a, that's allowing the citizens to say, Hey, I need clean water. I need electricity. I need uh, sanitation or I'm sitting in traffic and I hate it. And I want a new transportation system. I'm willing to take some of my money and put it towards this project. And, And the other thing about that is, is in addition to, you know, all of the benefits of crowdfunding, you create liquidity in a multi-trillion dollar market that that liquidity didn't exist before. So usually when, when, when you finance these projects, you're locked up for five to 15 years. So by creating a security token that for these projects, you allow people to actually trade those, those projects to, to trade the uh, ownership in that project. Mm. Exciting stuff. So, Tell me about so Sao Paulo's using Buildcoin right now. Yeah, yeah. So it's our first uh, our first big project, and it's uh, and so it started out as a lighting project where they wanted to replace their old uh, old light old lighting systems and public lighting systems with um, LED lights, and they're basically taking public the public lighting and 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 bringing in the private. So they're basically creating a public private partnership to incentivize people to take over. This. But as we got into it, and we brought in the experts in this crowd crowdsourcing methodology. The experts started to ask, "Well, why are you doing this? What's your mandate?" And 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 it, and it wasn't just to save money. The state of São Paulo's mission was to make São Paulo, the state of São Paulo, a safer place. So it's really about safety. And they said, "Well, if this is about safety, and you're going out and you're changing lights on all these poles. Why aren't you also installing webcams and sensors?" And so it, it migrated again, taking this methodology to make sure you have the best possible business plan. It might, it, it transformed from being replacing lights to actually um, create a smart cities project. That's going to have a much better impact on the citizens of Sao Paulo. Mm-hmm. And the important thing, the most important thing about this is when we talk to, uh, you know, the, the people who are bidding on these projects, the people are going to be participating in, they said this wouldn't have happened if you, you weren't involved. So without this ecosystem to originate these projects, it just wouldn't have happened. And I think that's the most important takeaway. So that's it's good that there's uses already. I, I like that um, 
um, when we started this announcement series um, about eight months back, a lot of the projects and the were just like, oh, we're in pre-alpha phase. Um, really, this is just an idea on notepads. And so I was like, ooh, not a good look. But I like that you guys actually have, you know, you know, Sao Paulo is, is using BuildCoin. And to speak to that point, I know Loki's partnered with Porsche, John, um, John Wise. I, I'd like to talk about that a little bit, actually. Like, what's what's that partnership about? And yeah, how, how's Loki helping out Porsche? Because I like Porsches. <laughs> Not, nice. not a not a partnership, a sponsorship. So oh, sure. um, okay. yeah, we're we're actually also not in the pre-alpha or even beta phase. I mean, we we've had sales for uh, going on like nine months, I think. Mm. Um, we've done two equity rounds before uh, before we did the token sale, and we're raising an equity round now as well. I mean, we've got we're we're a substantial business as well. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, no, the the, uh, the the Porsche sponsorship. So I spent 15 years as a, um, a race car mechanic, crew chief, and a, a mechanic. Um, that's where I kind of really got in deep with invention and and all of the issues around that. Um, when we really when when the marketing team here really set out to determine kind of the the right marketing strategy, the right demographic, um, we said, well, look, you know. Want to go toward eight, predominantly eighteen to thirty-four, um, predominantly men um, that are in the STEM community. A lot of women that are in the STEM community as well. Um, what are the marketing options that we can do? You know, we could do some publications, which we've done as well. We we can do some um, uh, industrial magazines, things like that. But hey, you know, you've got a Cinderella story here coming up from being a mechanic. Uh, and, and an engineer where you came up with this technology, why don't we do something in racing? The content would be amazing. Um, you could probably get pretty good deals on it and we'd get national and international television coverage. Um, but also it's really great for, for B2B opportunities because there are a lot of uh, enterprises that, that race in, the, in this industry that are also looking for the same demographic. Mm. So really, it's just let's get some exposure, and let's uh, let's attach Porsche to that exposure. So okay, yeah. In in 2015 and 2016, I worked for Volkswagen Audi Group um, as a as a race engineer. I kind of got back into it. Um, I had retired from racing in 2012, um, but uh, at the time, I thought it was a really good um, um, fundraising opportunity. Uh, which it ended up being, um, yeah. Sorry to take the sex appeal out of out of the thing. I mean, it's a staunch business move. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. But, um, but yeah. So so in 2016, I won a championship with Porsche and uh, Alec Udell, and said, you know what? Why don't Why don't we come back if we're talking about doing doing racing? Why don't we come back with with my old team, with my old driver, who's also an engineering student. Um, and just kind of do the whole Cinderella story, make it come full circle. So we had a, we had a race last weekend at uh, Virginia International Raceway, um, where in the first race we ran from ninth to third, uh, finishing out the podium, and the second race we ran from twelfth to fifth. Nice. I um I've been to one race, uh, Formula One race in Austin at Circuit of the Americas. Yep. Yep. And- we raced. 
at Coda in the uh, the first race of the year? It is probably one of the most fascinating things I've seen is the pit stops. Yeah. It is yeah. it is like wow. I don't know how you can get that much done in that little time. But Yeah, so so in F1 they have like 14 guys, 13 or 14 guys that that do the pit stops. Um and they'll change a tire uh, they'll they'll change all four tires. Um they don't do any fuel and they don't do any driver change, but they'll change all four tires, jack the car up and adjust the wings, the front and rear wings in uh, right around 2 seconds. Um and and that's Jeez. including bringing the car to a stop and accelerating away. Um, however, g- keep in mind that all those people are standing by waiting for the car to stop, um, in, in the series is, and I, I worked briefly in F1 as well. Um, but in the series that I, that I did most of my, um, my tenure in was like, uh, Le Mans, uh, for 24 hours, uh, um, uh, Daytona 24 hour Sebring and these endurance championships, it's called the world endurance championship. Um, I spent there where we would do 24 hour races straight through. Um, and you would do, you know, 40 to 50 pit stops that are all around nine to 12 seconds. Mm. Um, and in those we're doing driver changes, right? We're, uh, fueling the car with 24 to, to 30 gallons of fuel and doing four, uh, tires with three guys. Right with with three people that mm. start on the other side of the pit wall, wait until the car stops, and then run over. So, so you're also a logistics specialist too. As was, logistics, <laughs> yeah, logistics were racing. That's actually one of the hardest parts of, of racing that people don't realize. That between that and the and the sort of the business and money side of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you you need to get to you know thirty to forty different venues with you know seventy five to one hundred and fifty people. Um, pretty much every weekend, uh, and you have to get a truck and trailer. Oftentimes, for like Formula One, they'll have two entirely different um, sets of cars and uh, and crew and everything else. And they also typically own um, their own fleet of seven forty sevens. So this is probably a nice segue. Obviously, like logistics is a, a complex process is coming together for for one end game, and this is probably going to be a, a softball for everyone here, Joe and both Johns, and that is legal systems on the blockchain. Now, me like personally, I think that uh, it could get muddy because legalities change, and if you're going for immutability, yep. um, it could be tough to change it. I mean, we've witnessed. I mean, heck, it took Bitcoin three years to finally, it just went two separate ways, you know, and um, now recently we've had the parody team, uh, they're they're pleading pretty much to the Ethereum community, please, can we have our money back in the well, Ethereum communities? Huh? Hold, hold on here, because yes, legal systems change or perspectives of those things change, but the documentation of them should never change, right? Case law should always be set. And there should always be a different interpretation of it. Um, that's what changes from year to year, right? Um, the very constitution that, that our country was founded on has had many uh, variations and, and iterations to it. Um, we don't want to get rid of the constitution. We want to know every one of those amendments along the way. That's case law. That's exactly what we should have. Mm-hmm. So I 100% agree with John on that point. In fact, uh, one of the Startup Society's foundation's initiatives with its research arm, the Institute for Competitive Governance, is an open source legal system called ULEX, sort of a a spinoff of of Unix, an open source uh, operating system. 
and especially like John said, it has a set body of law. Um, you can fork um, to which body of law you want to do. In the case of, uh, of ULEX, it's the restatements of common law, but it can be civil law or it could be Texas state law or Delaware law. Um, but the point being is that it draws from a bunch of international and private sources on how they adjudicate disputes among states that are already established. Um, and they use that to adjudicate disputes in the future. So basically anywhere from around the world can use this legal system despite being in different states and uh, have a way that they can adjudicate disputes. Um, I, I think we should also point out that each of the speakers here, uh, John Cronin and John Wise, their companies can be the very basis of, of blockchain governance. Uh, governance is often the, the regulation of property, both public and private in the case of John Cronin and also intangible versus tangible in the case of John Weiss. Um, John Weiss and, uh, and, uh, and Loki provide a mechanism that allows entrepreneurs to benefit from the product of their ideas. And, uh, and John Cronin, allows infrastructure, which is, you know, a very fundamental basis of governance to be uh, widely uh, audited and financed. And uh, since the summit, which both our, our speakers of, is, uh, is basically trying to rebuild Puerto Rico, they're especially really important in those aspects. Uh, with, uh, with BuildCoin, it would have been tremendously valuable if we had BuildCoin for the Whitefish debacle, which is when uh, PREPA, the, the public company that does uh, uh, electricity infrastructure in Puerto Rico gave enormous amounts of money to this private company because it was so untransparent. Or in the case of Loki, it would have been tremendously valuable to entrepreneurs on the island who are struggling to deal with a Byzantine system of, of registering their companies and uh, applying for uh, intellectual property. So both of these, these speakers are fundamental examples of what blockchain can do for governance for Puerto Rico and beyond. I'm glad you mentioned that. Let's go in some, some detail on it. Um, one last one last note to it, really quick though, is that it, he's he hit the na the nail on the head here, right? But between John, um, the other John from Bitcoin here, being able to to rebuild this country, uh, this this country or or this uh, province here, um, that would have enabled companies and and individuals to develop more intellectual property or inventions or products, things like that. Uh, and mine more resources that then backfills with IP that has intrinsic value that isn't destroyable in a storm. You know, it's, it's, it's this, it's this endless loop of sort of um, intrinsic value. That's, that's really what we're trying to get to, right. And without corruption, without um, people putting their metally hands in this. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I think when it comes to the, the legal system, um, you know, I, you know, I think it was Vitalik Buterin that said code is law. And, you know, I have to say, I don't agree with that. And I think most people don't. I think it's kind of a dangerous, a dangerous way to, to state this and the way blockchain works, because you're going to end up, you know, violating some law somewhere and somebody's going to go to jail. But so I do think we need systems and there are developments now in the in the blockchain ecosystem where they're trying to conform to laws, but also this is a new paradigm. And the in a lot of cases, the old laws just won't work in the system and you can't put the genie back in the bottle. So I think the blockchain community can't ignore laws. We need to figure out how to work within existing laws the best the best we can. But also the laws, you know, we're talking about cross-border systems, global systems that can't be shut down, that have different governance systems. I think the law is going to have to change in a lot of ways to, to, to fit this new paradigm. 
So I 100% agree with that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say that that's exactly right. I mean, this has driven me and some colleagues to start uh, the Digital Asset Trade Association, which is uh, the group that's been responsible for Wyoming, Colorado, uh, Mississippi, Tennessee, and now working on New Jersey. Um, we're, 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 you're exactly right. Code is not law until it's written in as, as law agrees. You know, and the other thing that's fascinating about this whole market is you know, we had a chance with the, um, uh, to go to Congress with the, um, um, digital, um, uh, the, oh shoot, the, the group, the digital, digital asset trade association data. No, it was a uh, Perry and Boring's group. Um, oh, Digital Chamber of Commerce. Yeah, sorry, Digital Chamber of Commerce. And you know, we went to, to Congress and we, we sat down with congressmen and and uh, senators. And basically, you know, my message to them was if you don't find a way to, to make it easier for people to do business in this space, they're going to go other places. So what's happening is, yeah, I mean, countries that, are, that fall behind and don't change their laws to, to fit into this new paradigm People are, are going to leave those countries and go other places where they where where they are accepting of this, and and I think that's a fascinating, you know, trend. And this is one way that Puerto Rico can have tremendous gains. Um, it, it's very difficult to have these sort of reforms on a large scale, and a lot of governments they're risk averse to enacting such experimental policies, especially in blockchain, which they see is a little bit, you know, it has some antagonistic, almost anarchistic, uh, uh, origins, but it doesn't have to remain so. What a special economic zone in Puerto Rico can allow is it can allow for a testing of these ideas so they can see what would happen in this space. Because of, you know, contrary to the main libertarian argument, it's not regulations per se that stifles growth. It's lack of knowledge about regulations. If they're in a complete space where they're not sure what will be legal the next month or, or, the, or the next year, they want to get in the space. But if there is a special economic zone or a city where there's clear cut rules and they're set aside for for a long period of time, maybe like 30 or 40 years, Puerto Rico can experience an influx of capital that has only been seen in places like Hong Kong or Shenzhen or Dubai. Um, and with Act 20 and Act 22 benefits and being close to such huge markets, Puerto Rico can easily become the Hong Kong of the Caribbean. Mm. This is very interesting. You know, John Cronin, to your point, um, I agree with you that you know code can't be law. I think that um, the Vitalics of the world and most coders of the world see that as such a an easy thing to rely on because it's so matter of fact. You know, you either play by the rules of the language of that coding system, or if you don't, you're just not going to be able to get anything done. Right. You know, so I think that's why they think it's so matter of fact. <laughs> but I think they also overlook the huge fact that not everyone in the world speaks computer <laughs> so it's really hard to have code be law when people don't understand the law well you know and it's also so, possible to create malicious code as we all know absolutely we've seen that i was a dow victim yeah. i don't know if you guys remember the dow did any of you invest in the dow yeah no we didn't no, I, I didn't i did i um, lost a bunch but that was basically it Oh yeah, Mount Gox is another. They're still having a ripple effect on yeah. everything. I was a I was a huge proponent of the DAO, the first distributed autonomous organization. Mm -hmm. And that one guy took advantage of that. I think the batch overflow um, vulnerability, and he just started siphoning 
either to himself. So yeah, there could be malicious code as well. Um, so, go ahead. So there is one element to the Coda's law that can ring true, but not in the way that they envision it. Like you said, with the Slocket hack, um, the hacker of the Slocket hack was able, based on that premise, was able to justify his hack um, and, and say that he rightfully owned uh, the cryptocurrency that was stolen. But another element that blockchain sort of replicates normal processes of law is how much forking is similar to common law precedent. Because of law is constantly updated in the same way that a blockchain can be updated with a fork. So even if uh, in that individual circumstance, the code operates as it does, if there is new information um, that makes it necessary to update the law, that's the function of a fork. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely right when you think about it in, in that context as well. Could you, and then I guess you could also fork laws out of relevance in that same vein, right? Something just doesn't work and you amend it, you just fork and take it out. Of course, but to John uh, Cronin's point, you need to always be f focused on the legacy government. You can't act like um, like a lot of people in the original crypto community where they're trying to abolish um, existing states. Because that's one way that this movement and this industry is going to go down a wrong path. And also right. it's going to cause a lot of unnecessary en enemies and it's really going to stop institutional players from putting their money in it. So we need to work in partnerships with them in order to make this work. And, and I, you know, I think what people don't realize also is that, you know, sure you can set up smart contracts and anonymity to, to try to get around certain laws, but there's always an on and an off ramp. You know, you're always using a mobile device, you're using a computer. And whenever anybody says to me, you know, well, I, we can't use cryptocurrency, that's what criminals use, that's for money laundering. You talk to any respectable law enforcement official and they say, we'd much rather have a criminal with his hands on a keyboard than a bag full of money, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Even if code is, they think code is law and you can, you know, if you're doing bad things with code, you know, you have to touch a keyboard. You're, you know, you're, they can make the on and on, they can make it illegal and then pursue you getting on and off the keyboard. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's exactly right. So, I guess um, let's roll this into to kind of uh, some descriptives about the Start of Society Summit that is coming up here, um, the beginning of May, May 9th and tenth at uh, George Mason University in DC. Um, this is specifically for Puerto Rico. So, Joe, if you want to start it out by, you know, outlining kind of like what the listeners here today, like what they why they should go to the summit, why they should participate. And then maybe both John's, you can go into what you're going to speak to at the summit. All right. Excellent. So I'll just briefly explain what a startup society is, because I don't think I fully explained that a startup society, as we define it, is any form of experimental government located in a small scale. So that could be things like an eco-village, an intentional community, a microstate, a city-state, but most importantly, and the most common, is a special economic zone, which is an area within an existing host state that has differing policies than the rest of it. Um, and they've been used to tremendous success in the developing world. And in fact, uh, in people often credit China's rise uh, to special economic zones. Um, they could not reform the entire country, so they did individual cities that we now know as Shenzhen and Shanghai, in places like Hong Kong and Macau, we're able to get enormous amounts of foreign direct capital and have many ecosystems of entrepreneurs that allowed them to become one of the most 
economically powerful country in the world. Um, now it's being tried elsewhere. And we believe that a lot of this can be used in Puerto Rico as well, which has a reputation of not having the best governance. When you're looking at World Bank reports about ease of doing business, they fail on the most important metrics, which is registering property, uh, construction permits, and uh, uh, making it easy for entrepreneurs to exist in that climate. Um, so what we can do, because it is difficult and often politically unlikely to do reform on an island scale, it's best to do it on a small scale within a special economic zone. Um, but so a startup city is not like a normal startup that you can do in your garage. You, you can't just bring your friends together and start it up. You need a huge consortium of partners to come together, policymakers, investors, uh, exponential technology leaders like blockchain technology and also infrastructure experts. You need to come together and, and form a coalition to, to both build a plan and also actually execute it. And so that's what the Startup Society Summit is. It's a call to action for this consortium to bring all these partners together who will actually agree that we need to make a startup city in Puerto Rico. But not just a startup city, a sustainable startup city. Because of a lot of this infrastructure that was destroyed, failed, one, because it wasn't resilient against you know the elements that often impact Puerto Rico, and two, uh, they were done, um, they were created in a centralized and non-sustainable manner, which when the infrastructure is completely destroyed and there's a single point of failure, that's not very, you know, that's not very helpful, especially when uh, there's a, plenty of renewable sources that could have operated in a decentralized manner after the storm. So in the future, we have to, one, create a policy environment um, that will attract entrepreneurs and capital to the island. Uh, and two, we need infrastructure that can withstand the elements and a huge component of that is crypto. Not only can it bring a lot of crypto capital to the island and cause a lot of create a lot of jobs, as we were mentioning before, there's enormous applications of blockchain that can be related to governance that can streamline it um, and, and, and make it a lot more effective than it is now. So the reason to come to the summit is to be part of this consortium. Um, you have the opportunity to put your ideas down in paper, to make relationships with people who will build the new cities of tomorrow. This is uh, the, the constitutional convention of the new political era. And I think that it, it, you would regret it uh, ultimately in the end if you, if you found out that the Startup Society's movement was the new turn in history. And our speakers at our events are absolutely amazing. Of course, we John Cronin and John Wise are are, are absolute leaders in the realm of blockchain governance. And as I mentioned before, they already have products that are doing things. They're not simply talking about it. They're not arguing about it. They're doing. We have other blockchain leaders like Rick Willard of Agentic Group, we have Crystal Rose Pierce. Uh, we have uh, uh, lots of other people that are from the Stardust Society's movement, such as Joe Quirk of, of uh, Blue Frontiers or Titus Gievel of, of, of Free Private Cities. And we even, and we have lots of Puerto Rican partners, which is important, um, that are part of this. We, in fact, half of our consortium are Puerto Rican entrepreneurial groups, because ultimately, and this has to be emphasized to the end of the day, that this has to be led and be for the benefit of Puerto Ricans. The whole point of startup societies is to benefit the people within those cities and within those locales. So if it is done from an outside group, an outside perspective, with outside interest, it should fail and it will fail. So we're bringing together uh, countless uh, Puerto Rican entrepreneurial groups for our summit and as part of our consortium, and we're giving free tickets to Puerto Ricans. Um, so if, if you join our summit, you'd be vital into pushing this forward into making sure that we have sustainable, transparent, and effective governance for Puerto Ricans and prosperity for their future.
I like the passion. I love the passion, actually. And it makes perfect sense to me is, is that um, a lot of, you know, the bigger government gets, the less nimble it can be. So if you create these, I guess, safe zones, for lack of a better word, for capital to go in and growth to happen, then, y- you know, you kind of get these catalyst situations, like you mentioned with Shanghai and places in China. And so anyways, to go back into particulars, John, John, what are you going to be, John Wise, sorry, <laughs> what are you going to be speaking to at the summit for um, anyone so that I've, wants to go? I've mostly been asked to speak about um, the, the regulatory aspect um, with my affiliations with data. Um, but I can also speak to how we can gain uh, and, and sort of regain sustainable economic growth uh, within Puerto Rico, how, how we can create a system that has true intrinsic value long term uh, and make, make a potentially special economic zone um, a force to be reckoned with long term, not just enough to, to, to rebuild. Although the rebuild is extremely crucial here in order to make that happen. I want to make it so that it lasts, right? We don't want to just rebuild it just just to have it fail, um, like a, a a place like our our efforts in Afghanistan or or Iraq or things things along those lines. Um, we really want to make it last. Want to make sustainable value and and make uh, Puerto Rico a real commerce hub. Good deal. What about you, John Cronin? So, um, you know, I think what we want to get across at the startup societies is, you know, as we, as we kind of went down this path of improving infrastructure around the world. You know, we started out realizing that people are just, um, you know, I said average people creating average studies to, to create projects that they've already made a decision that they wanted to do, whether they're the right projects or not. We started bringing in experts and realized we could create better projects. But as we've gone down this path, and some people in the infrastructure industry have kind of pointed out that most infrastructure today is incremental. We have a bridge that's failing, we need a new bridge. We have a new city, we need to create a new road. Um, You know, nobody's thinking outside the box and saying, how do we actually create transformational infrastructure? Something that's gonna break the mold, something that's gonna set up a, a, a region or a city for the future. And, you know, most of these infrastructure projects are billion dollars. So let's take a a transportation project. So there's a city in the United States that is going to implement light rail and it's going to cost a billion dollars and take 10 to 15 years. And when they sat down with some of our partners and looked at that, they said, okay, Uber didn't exist five years ago. People are now using these electric scooters called birds, which are eating into Uber's business. They didn't exist six months ago. Um, less people are driving. Autonomous vehicles are hitting are coming on, on, on the market. Why would we build a light rail system that's going to take 10 years to deliver and it's going to be the wrong thing? So we are going to announce some partnerships and we're going to announce it there. I'm not going to announce it here with some really, some really big thinkers in the world about how we're going to bring transformational infrastructure to the world. And I think Puerto Rico is a perfect place to start with that. I mean, the show is called Announcements. You could announce it if you wanted to. <laughs> I wouldn't be mad at you. Well, I'm not going to take that away from from. Uh... <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I like to get exclusives for some reason. So, so, so what, yeah, maybe next time. <laughs> well, one hey, one thing I did want to bring to to clarify: um, we are early stage. You know, John has launched his token. He's done his ICO. We, we're we're not at that point. 
And the reason we're able to execute these projects without actually having done an ICO is, you know, I'm a big believer in the, the lean startup methodology. You know, we, have, we do have existing products ourselves. We have, our partners have existing products that perform some of these functions. And we are experimenting and validating and using blockchain technology and using tokens, but we haven't launched our, our final system yet. So we are working with a few good projects. Um, you know, uh, Sao Paulo is the first one. We have a couple other that we're, we're about ready to come online. And then Puerto Rico is, is where we'd like to start next. But, so we're not ready to scale but we are implementing our technology and our methodology, but it's not, we have not launched our ecosystem to the public yet. That's Thank you. And we are, we are going down the fundraising path right now to, to bring in resources to fulfill that mission. Thank you for um, clarifying that. I'm sure the, the audience is going to love that clarity. So one last question I'll ask to anyone who wants to take it. It's become somewhat of a trademark question of our announcement series now, and that is, is there anything that you'd wished that I asked that I didn't? Um, I got a few questions actually. So, okay. these are, so I'm, I'm putting together a sort of thought leaders events during uh, blockchain week in, in New York. Um, and a lot of people that, that I see as sort of the OGs in the industry um, and outside of the industry um, we're really dejected with the CoinDesk and consensus um, events here because they, they felt like they just turned into profit, you know, sort of profit making conferences that, that offer a lot of pitches, crazy expensive sponsorships and all sorts of stuff. Wanted to, we all wanted to go back to our roots of like really coming up with the difficult answers for very difficult questions. So I put together a list of questions that we wanted to ask in our, our thing and I'll, I'll, I'll prompt them. And now I don't have that much time because I have to run to another meeting. But um, so the questions are as follows. How should we properly value a company pre and post ICO? And how do we properly explain the difference between a coin market cap and the market cap of the underlying business? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Question number two, how do we truly include the unbanked and those without internet? Number three, how do we merge regulation and cryptocurrency without resistance while a Lining the incentives. Number four, what is the ideal process, uh, ideal process blueprint for a company going to ICO? <clears throat> Number five, how do we create more inclusion and avoid the echo chamber that we've already come to know? Uh, These are excellent questions, by the way. What to do around social media marketing? Is not marketing a good thing or a bad thing? How should we push scaling from a market-wide perspective? How would we define bad actors and where, how they should be reported? Uh, next is, what about the frat, the FAT protocol mentality? Is it a problem or a solution? Uh, another is, how to improve internal collaboration in the industry and draw in external sources to increase impact and market cap? Mm. Each one of those questions is like a show in and of itself. I like yeah. it. <laughs> I've been in this industry for 10 years, well, nine years. Yep. Um, you know, it's, I, I've been in and around it, right? So it, it, intellectual property being, being that long, mm -hmm. you know, 2010. Um, uh, another question here is valuation decentralization or entity decentralization? 
wanted a prompted discussion about anarchism over libertarianism. Um, another is discussion about aligning incentives. Do we really want to kill the banks and enterprises? If so, how do we work with them long enough to make it stick? If not, how do we include them? Um, so th those are the questions that I really feel that, that we as, a, as an industry need to have answered as soon as possible. They're really, really tough. They're certainly not things that we can answer on, on this show. Um, but I think it's, it's stuff to get everybody thinking. Yes, very much so. Um, I'm going to be taking notes after this goes out on those questions because I think um, it'd be interesting to get discussion, uh, like you said, uh, discussion from thought leaders about what exactly are the answers to those questions. So um, we can wrap it up. But Joe, John, John, thank you very much for your time. And, um, you know, thanks for swinging by this morning and explaining a little bit about BuildCoin, uh, Loki, and the Startup Society Summit that is happening in D.C. Um, yeah, if you guys have anything to add, anything you want to plug as we wrap this up, by all means, go for it. Well, yeah, you, um, to, to answer your question about what question you didn't ask. Okay. Sorry, yeah, I kind of cut that one off. That's right. That's right. I mean, I think, you know, I think to me it's, you know, what, what can the blockchain crypto community, what's the one thing that we could do um, that we could focus on to make these visions become realities? And, you know, what, what I believe is, you know, from being at conferences and talking to people and seeing what's happening, and I think some of this fits into what, what some of the things John was saying is, there's way too much focus on price of tokens and trading of tokens. And that's an important component of this whole ecosystem, but we need to focus on how they're using, how they're being used and the value that they're, they're delivering. And somebody asked the other day, when's the last time you used a utility token, right? All this focus on is a token a utility and how's it going to be used? And there's just, you know, not enough focus on use and getting it used. And that's the most important thing is how we're going to use these tokens and not about whether the price is going to go up or down. And, um, you know, these telegram channels, it's, there's less focus in the telegram channels on how the, how the tokens are being used and how the ecosystem is delivering value. Everybody's talking about the price. And I think that's a huge disservice to this, this whole community. Yeah. To, to further that point, um, He's, he's dead on, right? Everybody was, was focusing on the semantics around, um, around utility tokens, right? The regulation around it, the, the price of it, um, how they're filing, blah, 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 right? Um, so much so that we made the mistake of just assuming that people were already using tokens for utility or <laughs> things, right? Uh, and for us to actually use our tokens, we couldn't find any code and searched for months and months and months um, looking for code, looking for anything out there that we could just get off the shelf or even from private sources. Um, I asked around the entire industry to see if anybody had code for accepting tokens uh, as payment for a product, actually proving utility. Um, this was in, uh, I want to say November, maybe October of last year. It simply did not exist. 
everybody that mm. had been talking about proving utility had never actually proven utility. Um, we were the first ones that had ever done it. And, and, and that was just befuddling to me. It, 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 was, it was enraging. Um, nobody had ever actually proven utility. And, and, and it just said to me, wow, you know, what a, what a ridiculous cycle here of us all just, you know, furiously agreeing on everything. <laughs> and, you know, I've been through the dot-com boom and bust and, you know, we, we first got customers. Um, we got them using the system and then we raised money and we did it backwards, I guess, but, it, but it worked for us. And when the crash came and there will be a correction here in this market as well, just like the dot-com boom and bust. And after the correction, it's the tokens, the ecosystems that actually have people using it and deriving value. They're going to be the long-term successes and those that just have a, a pumped up price and a lot of marketing hype behind it, but no actual use. Those are the ones that are going to go away. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to add um, to close by uh, answering, a, asking a question to the audience rather than to ourselves, if that's possible. Go for it. So in the future, when your child is at your knee and he's flipping through or uh, their textbook, if they're still using books in the future, their history textbook, and you're, you're seeing what is happening right now or in the next 10 years, what are you going to do if you weren't part of it? Because you can clearly see right now things are getting stranger. Things are accelerating. And the people who are listening on this podcast have clear views of what the future is going to hold. So what are you going to say to your child when they ask, were you part of this pivotal part of history where decentralization and better governance and blockchain technology started to better the world and fundamentally transform it? What are you going to say? Are you going to say, sorry, I had better things to do that Thursday and Wednesday? Or are you going to say, I was part of it. I was there. I am part of your history textbook. So if you want to say to your child, I was part of the 21st century constitutional convention, uh, I recommend coming to the summit, George Mason University, May 9th at George Mason University, as I said before. Um, and because of this podcast has been so wonderful, thank you so much for joining, uh, for, uh, for uh, interviewing us. We'd like to extend a promo code for 30% off using the promo code SSFFRIEND. Um, and I hope to see you all there and be a part of future history. Well, we got to close it on that. That's powerful. Be a part of history. Go to the Startup Society Summit. That's a wrap.